0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter as to count one unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. This verdict agreed to this 20th day of April, 2021, at one forty-four p.m.
1: As that guilty verdict for the murder of George Floyd was read in the Minneapolis courtroom and broadcast to the country, former police officer Derek Chauvin displayed no reaction. But outside the heavily fortified and guarded courthouse, the crowd erupted at the announcement of the jury's verdict of guilt on all three counts. (laughs) A jury convicted Chauvin of all three charges, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter for cutting off Floyd's air supply on May 25th as he lay handcuffed and pleading for mercy. The verdict, reached after less than 11 hours of deliberation, came 11 months after the graphic footage of Chauvin and Floyd went viral. The conviction could mean decades in prison for the 45-year-old Chauvin. Joining me is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner in Carter & English. What's your reaction to this, what I would call a quick verdict and a slam dunk for the prosecution? It was a very
0: quick verdict. Usually, jurors take their time to methodically go through all of the evidence that is presented before them during the trial, even if they know at the beginning of their deliberation how this might end. So this was a very quick verdict, given the amount of evidence and the complexity of the scientific and expert testimony that the jurors heard. But at the same time, it's not entirely a surprise. I think those nine and a half minutes, that videotape, was really the star witness for the prosecution. It was the most compelling evidence and ultimately, I think, was so seared into the minds of jurors that it was very difficult for the defense to overcome.
1: Bob, is there any conflict in finding guilty on all three of the charges where there is depraved mind but also intent to commit a felony? Is there any kind of internal inconsistency?
0: I don't think so. All three of them, required differing levels of recklessness. None of them required an intent to murder. The second-degree murder charge, which is the most serious charge, required an intent to commit assault or a felony, which was in this case was assault. And in this case, they found that the the officer, Officer Chauvin, had intended to commit an assault on George Floyd and that that substantially led to his death. The other charges are sort of lesser-included offenses in the sense that they require less of a tie between the conduct of the officer and the death, They're more recklessness and negligence. They were thrown in there by the prosecution in case they could not get jurors to unanimously agree that the conduct of the officer was, in fact, a crime in and of itself, that he assaulted George Floyd, and those other charges were there because they would allow the jurors to still convict, even if they did not find that there was an intent to commit a felony by former Officer Chauvin.
1: What testimony stood out in the prosecution's case? Well, the prosecution
0: had a case that was really fairly straightforward, and I think the videotape was the best and most compelling evidence for them. That nine and a half minutes where you saw former Officer Chauvin kneeling on the neck of George Floyd was something that was very, very difficult to watch. The defense tried to shift the focus of jurors onto all the events that led up to that particular moment where they were subduing him for nine and a half minutes. And the defense tried to play up the fact that police officers are subject to situations that are inherently difficult to predict. They're dangerous. You don't always know what a defendant is going to do during the course of an arrest. And trying to convince jurors that the conduct was reasonable, but that video was difficult to overcome. The visual image of kneeling on George Floyd's neck while a crowd gathered and people started to hold up their cell phones and videotape what was going on, sensing that something there was very wrong, I think that was just too much for jurors to ignore.
1: The fact that the blue wall sort of collapsed in this trial, do you think this verdict will have an impact on other trials or in real life?
0: I think that it will. We have to be mindful of the fact that most police officers act within the law, that they use only reasonable force when arresting individuals. But in this case, the conduct was so egregious that even officers within the Minnesota Police Department could not come to Officer Chauvin's defense. I think there was a lot of pressure, public pressure, that was being brought to bear on the department, and it was necessary that they step up and testify as they felt was accurate and reasonable in terms of whether or not the police conduct was defensible. And in this case, the officers who testified on behalf of the prosecution clearly crossed that line. As you said, they crossed the blue line. They testified for the prosecution, saying that the conduct of their former colleague was unreasonable. It then became a battle of the experts as to whether or not that unreasonable conduct substantially led to George Floyd's death.
1: You know, since before the trial, the defense has been stacking up different kinds of objections. And so it seems as if there'll be a lot of issues for appeal.
0: Yeah, there always are appeals in criminal cases. It never happens that someone goes to trial and doesn't try to appeal that conviction, it's almost automatically. Something that is taken up because there are so many judgment calls that are made during the course of the trial in terms of jury instructions, in terms of what evidence is admitted and not admitted. There are always uh, issues that they can take up on appeal. In this case, you know, for example, there's the question whether or not the jury should have been moved outside of downtown Minneapolis. If there should have been a change of venue, could Officer Shilvyn have gotten a fair trial in front of jurors from downtown Minneapolis? You know, that's going to be one issue certainly that we
1: can expect to see. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz of McCarter & English. Coming up next, possible sentences for Derek Chauvin. The jury convicted Chauvin on all three charges, a conviction that could mean decades in prison for the 45-year-old Chauvin when he's sentenced in eight weeks. Joining me is former public defender Krista Groshek, managing attorney of Groshek Law in Minneapolis. So what do you think was the biggest factor in the verdict? Well, I think it all came down to the number of experts,
2: the credibility of the experts, and the intensity of that expert testimony. I mean, the state presented a number of experts as it relates to the use of force. And then they presented additional experts as it related to causation. And I think that while Tobin is, a, I believe, a breathing expert or a lung doctor, a pulmonologist, he gave some really good testimony that really broke things down for the jury and they could clearly understand its point. You know, there was also a fair amount of emotion, too, as it related to what the bystanders thought and saw and felt at the time. So I think the state had a lot of things uh, working for them in their favor, and it all came together during the course of the trial. And again, you never know what this is going to look like until people sit down and start talking and, you know, you make arguments and uh, exhibits go in. I I think it all just kind of fell their way.
1: Is it unusual that they were able to come to a decision so quickly on these three different charges? What do you think happened back there?
2: If I had to guess, which obviously I am, the feedback I've gotten from juries is that when there's a situation where there's a top count and then a middle and then a lower count, if they find that the defendant is guilty on the top count, then everything goes like a, like a line of dominoes. Right? They don't bother getting into the analysis of the lower counts because if they've decided that he's guilty on the top counts, then it just flows that he's guilty on the other counts
1: as well. What kind of sentence is Chauvin facing? Well,
2: what's not great for him is that while the murder two and murder three each carry that 150-month mandatory minimum, the maximum on murder two is 40 years versus 25 on three. And 10 on the manslaughter, too. So potentially, he's looking at, because the top count is the governing count, right? It will be the governing sentence. The other charges will merge for the purposes of sentencing. If the prosecution is successful in its bid for an aggravated sentence, an upward departure, he could go to prison for 40
1: years. I thought the Minnesota Sentencing Guidelines recommended 12 and a half years for each murder charge.
2: They do. So for murder three and murder two, the mandatory minimum sentence for both is that 12 and a half years, that 150 months. However, the prosecution can say, judge, don't give them a guideline sentence. This was much more egregious than your typical case. And here's all of the reasons why we heard information about how you know police officers are considered to be in a position of trust and authority, that there were children present in the area. I expect the prosecution will have a very Lengthy list of factors as to why they believe the judge should give him more than that 150 months. And with that top count, that murder two, they have up to 40 years. I mean, the prosecution can ask for double, triple. We see that happening a fair amount in terms of departures. You know, they ask for the maximum sentence.
1: Do you think the judge here is likely to give a sentence like that? I think the judge will give it a lot of thought. I think it's very
2: likely that uh, Judge Cahill will seriously entertain um, that possibility. Judge Cahill isn't afraid uh, to sentence people um, to terms of imprisonment that are longer than the guidelines that he believes that that's recommended. What we didn't see here is uh, a Blakely or a sentencing jury and panel. Typically speaking, if there's a finding of guilt, then the defendant can say, I'd like to have my Blakely hearing now And it's my understanding that um, that either isn't going to happen or that that Blakely issue was waived and Judge Cahill is going to make that decision. Typically speaking, juries really don't have a sense for whether or not there's aggravating factors because it was bad enough for them to convict and they don't have a sense of other cases that, you know, go in and out of that courthouse and what the typical case is. So it's not unusual for a defendant to waive that sentencing jury and argue those issues to the court.
1: The defense, almost from the beginning, was raising issues that seemed like they'll be appellate issues. Do you see a lot of appellate issues here?
2: I see a ton of appellate issues here. I mean, everything from the initial uh, request for change of venue um, to the uh, settlement issues that we saw surfacing early on, right, interfering with jury selection. We have issues of prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, The defense frequently complained, and we saw this during the trial. "Mm, I just got this, right? Or, oh, I don't have the amended exhibit, right? Or, oh, they gave us discovery in what they were calling discovery soup, right, where everything was a mess. And so the new information that they were disclosing couldn't be found. There's also uh, the issue of the Brooklyn Center police officer um, who got charged with second-degree manslaughter, uh, says she was reaching for her taser, reached for her gun. Um, there was a request of Wadia well, the jury. The judge said no, said no. There was numerous requests for uh, mistrials. And there was a, a last request, even I believe after closing arguments occurred, uh, based upon um, the very public words of California Representative Maxine Waters, who was saying that, hey, jury, if there's an acquittal, um, you know, people should take to the streets and protest, which could amount to jury intimidation. Judge Cahill, on one hand, said, hey, you may have a good appeal issue there, but then denied the mistrial on the ground that, well, nobody listens to, you know, a representative from California. Um, So I I think there's just a number of of things that children can appeal. We can even uh, look at that reinstatement of the third-degree murder charge that Judge Cahill was reticent to put in place that overturned a, a century's worth of decisions that said you can't use that charge in the way it was used here in this case so I think Chauvin has you know a number of issues to contest um, for his appeal and you know that doesn't even take into account the typical uh, appellate issues that are existing now in the day of COVID and masks and separation and you can't see people's faces I mean there's a lot here that he can make hay with down the road.
1: Will this trial in any way affect the tro- the upcoming trial of the three other police officers? I mean, th- will there be any kind of plea deals offered now? Perhaps
2: the uh, defense attorneys will con- consult their clients and say, hey, you know, this is how it went down with regard to Mr. Chauvin. I don't know how coordinated um, the defense attorneys are with regard to sharing experts. Um, I know that the defense attorneys representing the three other individuals are seasoned, accomplished, very dynamic characters that may have, in fact, sought out their own experts and pursued the case in a much different fashion, knowing, of course, that their clients are situated much differently, right? And and many of them being rookies, many of them not
1: calling the shots with Chauvin, you know, the main guy on the scene. Thanks, Krista. That's Krista Groshek of Groshek Law. Embattled New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is now the subject of four investigations. The latest is an investigation by the New York State Attorney General Letitia James into Cuomo's use of state resources for his book, American Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. Joining me is Bloomberg Legal Reporter Patricia Hurtado. So, Pat, tell us about this latest investigation.
3: Well, Cuomo allegedly, according to the New York Times, used Stafford to help write and do edits and make copies on his book. So the New York Times suggested that there might be an impropriety there, that government employees and expenditures were, were made on government time for his purposes of writing his book and getting his book published. So uh, as a result of that, um, the New York Times wrote a story about it, and the New York State Controller. Recommended that this possibly be a new avenue to investigate Cuomo and if there was anything improper. Did he suggest that to the attorney general? Basically, he authorized the opening of an investigation. The, the comptroller, the state controller has to recommend that the attorney general investigate. So he authorized her to launch an inquiry into whether state resources were used for Cuomo's pandemic book.
1: I assume that a lot of people at work have things copied, and if you have an assistant, you have an assistant copy some personal things. Is it that picayune what they're talking about,
3: or is it much more? Well, it depends on who you're talking to. I mean, the Times and some of the employees were alleging that this was work that was done during office hours, and it was unseemly and improper. Now, the governor has claimed that this was minor work It was incidental. It was people who volunteered to copy, edit, and look over, uh, you know, look at a draft of a chapter, and that this didn't merit any kind of possible, you know, this wasn't any kind of flagrant violation of any state laws or any violations of impropriety. And in fact, the governor, his staff came out with a very strong comment after this happened, and they actually, his spokesman Rich, as a party, said, we've officially jumped the shark. The idea that there was criminality involved here is patently observed on its face, and it's just furthering of a political pylon. So it depends on who you're looking for. But, you know, there's a series of avenues of investigation that, that the governor is subject to. So he's look, being looked at for possible sexual harassment at, at work as the governor by a impeachment committee formed by the state assembly. And he's also the subject of a separate investigation being conducted by a law firm by Letitia James, the attorney general. And then he's also being investigated for alleged in the states and proprieties involving possible misreporting of nursing home deaths last year during the pandemic. So, you know, it just seems to show that Cuomo isn't walking away anytime soon from allegations of impropriety. You know, in his actions, I guess he's opened himself up to possible claims that he has improperly used his job. And this is just another one.
1: Do we know where those other
3: investigations stand right now? You know, I think that this is in for a long haul. It's unclear how long the investigation is going to take. What is clear is it's probably going to take a long time. And the reason I say this is because Letitia James, the attorney general, when she did an investigation of what happened with the nursing home deaths, she started it in March of last year and it it finally came out in January. So it was a month-long process, and these things are pretty detailed. So it's unclear how long it will take, but you know, certainly a federal investigation of the nursing home. Reporting that is being done by the Eastern District of New York and Brooklyn and the FBI, that's likely to take a very long time. And we do know that the impeachment investigation that's being done for the state assembly, they said that it could take months. And so they're on the record saying months. I imagine it's going to be a while before we hear anything, but they've also said that this is another element that is going to be investigated by both the impeachment assembly investigation, as well as now Tish James is going to start one.
1: So it seems like Cuomo is just going to try to ride the whole thing out.
3: Yeah. And in the meantime, it looks like Cuomo might end up being like a political piñata here.
1: Do we know how much he made for this book? It was at the height of his popularity
3: during COVID that he made the deal. He will not say how much he earned, but he said that everybody has constantly asked him about his taxes, and he's released his tax information. So he calls this. Albany politics at its worst. And he says the controller and the AG have spoken to people about running for governor and it's unethical for them to wield criminal referral authority for their political self-interest. So you can see that he's calling this out, that claiming this is all just payback for people who possibly want to run for governor. Thanks, Pat. That's Bloomberg Legal Reporter Patricia Hurtado. And
1: that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.